Hello and welcome to the Battle Cry podcast with Mark Mecklen. Catch the original live broadcast Sunday nights at 8pm Eastern. Go to conventionofstates.com slash pod to learn more. And now, here's the Battle Cry with Mark Mecklen. Hey y'all, I'm excited to be here. Sunday night Battle Cry. I know, it doesn't look like the library. The dogs aren't here. I'm dressed up. But we're coming to you from someplace special. I'm here in Wilkesboro, North Carolina. And I just finished a town hall. And this is my favorite thing to do. I mean, I always say Sunday nights with you are my favorite, but really my favorite is being live with folks. And so we just had a packed room full of people uh, from all around this area in North Carolina. And we got to sit around with Patriots. We got to talk a bunch. I was here with Mike Ferris, my co-founder for the organization, who's back here with us and on the road with us. Uh, We had our regional director here. We had regional captains from all over the state. And we had a great event tonight. And so what we're going to do tonight, instead of the normal battle cry, and Winston and Levi miss y'all, I know, and you miss them. What we're going to do tonight is we're going to show you this town hall so you get a sense of what it's like when we're out on the road. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. We are very, very pleased to have this, uh, this group here uh, up on the stage. Um, Mark Meckler, you probably all know Mark. Uh, he comes to North Carolina, has been to North Carolina a lot. Um, Mark, you may know, uh, uh, co-founded the Tea Party Patriots back in 2009, uh, left the Tea Party movement in around 2012. Uh, COS started in around 2013. Michael Ferris was the co-founder of Convention of Stage with, with Mark Meckler. Uh, and Mark can get into some more of the, the details of, uh, of his past, but that's uh, that's uh, his history. It's from the Tea Party movement, a grassroots organization, and that's what we are as, as well. Uh, Michael Ferris here, uh, as I mentioned, co-founded COS. You may not know, but uh, Michael was uh, started the Homeschool Legal Defense Association prior to COS. So if you're a homeschooler, you can thank that organization for, for uh, litigating to make it legal in all 50 states. And then, of course, Michael pushed at Mark's arms, convinced Mark that this was a good idea. Convention of States was formed, and uh, they were partners in crime. And then, and then uh, Michael left uh, COS, not officially, but, uh, uh, well, officially, but not uh, obviously still a supporter, uh, to become president of the Alliance Defending Freedom. You should know who that is. If you appreciate what happened with the Dobbs case and Roe v. Wade, then you should know who the Alliance Defending Freedom is. And uh, so we are very, very happy to have both Mark and Michael. And then in the middle is Joy Ruman. Joy is a volunteer, just like everyone in North Carolina, has pretty much given up her career right now to, to focus almost full-time, well, really, in essence, full-time, other than her, her gig at uh, Belt. Belt. So, I work uh, retail now. <laughs> um, but Joy is, is our state director here. Um, and uh, we're happy to have her with us tonight. So with that, I'm going to go ahead and kick this off. Um, you'll have to bear with me. I'm probably not as good as Rita Peters or Tucker Carlson. I'm doing panel discussions, but you know, I'll try my best here. Um, but I do want to kick it off with Mark. And um, I want Mark just to give you, he did a wonderful job on the, on the freshman webinar. We did a webinar several weeks ago for freshman legislators across the country to introduce them to COS. 
And it, it, he, did a phenomenal, he did a phenomenal job really laying out the heart of COS in a very succinct, logical fashion. So I'd like you to kind of do the COS 101 for us first. Okay, great. Uh, first, I want to say how great it is to be here. Uh, we sort of have, you know, Christmas, New Year's, off-season, quote-unquote, and things slow down. Y'all didn't slow down, but I did slow down a little bit. And uh, for me, to get back out in the field is really exciting. You know, sometimes I get tired of traveling. I was telling Patty last night, getting ready to go and packing up, and just how excited I was to get back out. And the reason I say that is because being with the grassroots, being in a room full of people like y'all, is the reason that I do what I do. I mean, literally, it's because I have so much faith in you. I've traveled so much around the country. I know so many of you. I know we're gonna save the country because you're out there. So one, just thank you guys for being here because you guys give me the juice that I need. I appreciate it. <laughs> Number two is you guys are actually seeing something historic, which is, uh, you know, Mike Ferris and I founded this organization together. It was his idea and he brought me in and we found, you know, joined hands, founded the organization, started to build this organization together. So. After years away at ADF doing incredibly important work, Mike called me a few months back and said, asked if there was still a home for him here. I said yes, so you guys are seeing the first time out on the road, me and Mike Ferris together again. The band is back together. So I'm especially excited to be here. Now I know a lot of you know the basics of COS, but I think it's important uh, for those who don't, and also for all of us who do, that we just kind of constantly refresh exactly what it's about and why we do what we do. Uh, and I'm going to tell you something that Mike Ferris told me when we got on the phone that first time and, and we started talking about this idea. He asked me a question. He asked if I was satisfied with what I'd accomplished in politics. And my answer was, no, I'm miserable. And the reason I was miserable is we had elected the largest swing class in the history of Congress since 1938. Tea Party movement was responsible for that. And then they went into Washington, D.C., and I thought everything was going to change, and they promptly did nothing, right? Literally nothing changed. And Mike told me that it was because I had a mistaken impression of what it would take to fix the system and what was actually wrong. And Mike explained to me, that we had a systemic problem, a structural problem, not a personnel problem in Washington, D.C. And what we've done over the last, say, 120 years, 125 years now maybe, is we've broken our system of governance. And the founders gave us a way to fix it if that ever happened. You know, Colonel George Mason said, September 15, 1787, that he asked a question of the men assembled there who were drafting the Constitution, the, the convention's almost over. He said, we have a problem. We haven't given the power to the states to propose amendments. We gave it to Congress. Are we so naive that we believe that a Congress that becomes a tyranny will ever propose the proper kinds of amendments to fix their own tyranny? And of course, the answer to that is no, because that's not human nature. I don't, I'm not aware of any human being ever that said, hey, I have too much power. I need to give it back to other people. <laughs> it's just not the way people are wired. And so, he knew and they knew and they, without debate, voted unanimously to give us this power to call a convention of states to propose amendments to restrain the federal government. That was one of the purposes uh, that they were proposing this for. So here we are now, almost 250 years later, we have not used the second clause of Article 5 and the federal government is clearly out of control. 
They're originally a very limited number of enumerated powers given to the federal government, limited enumerated powers, those to the people in the states, unenumerated and unlimited. And yet the federal government now has all the power. I think there were 17 original enumerated powers. Today, I think the federal government has 17 million or so. I don't really know how many, but it's a lot. And so it's broken and it's backwards and there's a lot of reasons for that. There are a lot of court cases we could discuss or the 17th Amendment. A lot of things have happened to break the structure, but the founders told us what to do if it ever got to this point and we had an unresponsive federal government. And they said, call a convention, propose amendments and go through the process. And the process that they laid out for us goes like this. It takes two thirds of states to call a convention of states. Today that's 34 states. The process is that each state drafts and then passes a resolution, generally by a simple majority in both houses. The governor's signature is not necessary. This is not a bill. It's not legislation. It's important we remember that distinction. This is called a resolution. So it's no involvement of the governor's, no governor's signature necessary. Just got to get the House and the Senate to do it. Once they do that and they pass a resolution, that resolution is transmitted to Congress for recording. And when we get to the point where there are 34 states that have passed virtually identical resolutions, then Congress has a duty and it says in the Constitution that they shall call a convention. And that means they should name the time and the place. This is really important. It says shall, that means they have no discretion. This is what's legally called either a ministerial or a secretarial duty. They have to do this. And I just want to assure people, I get asked the question all the time, what happens if they don't? And the answer is it doesn't actually matter in my opinion, in our legal opinion, because the states retain the sovereign authority to gather anytime they want. States are sovereign entities. It is, and this is an important thing to remember, a convention of states. It's not a convention of delegates. It's not a convention of proportional representation. It's not a convention of people or populations. It is a convention of states, the sovereign states gathering. When the states gather, they'll gather in convention. They will elect their own officers at convention. If you wanna know what this looks like, we ran a simulated convention in 2016. Much of the footage from that is on the web. They'll elect their officers. They will adopt a set of rules. Likely those rules will be Mason's rules. Mason's rules are used by about 70% of the state legislatures in the country. We believe that most of the delegates to convention will be legislators or retired legislators, so they'll use something they're familiar with. If you're not familiar with Mason's rules, they're like Robert's Rules of Order. Some of the legislatures actually use Robert's Rules. So they'll draft their rules, probably using that rule set. By the way, we've prepared a model rule set that makes it easier for them to give them something to start on. They'll layer over a couple of particular rules on Masons that'll be things particular to convention. And then likely the way they'll operate is like a legislature. You guys, most of you have watched a legislature operate. You understand that they'll probably break out into committees around the three subject matter areas of our resolution. The resolution has three subject matter areas, anything that would impose fiscal restraints on the federal government, like a balanced budget, tax and spending caps, things like that. Anything that would impose term limits on federal officials and members of Congress. And it's important, notice I said federal officials and members of Congress, because it could apply as well to staffers and bureaucrats, what we now know as the deep state. And I think this is important to understand. Yeah, everybody thinks about term limits for Congress, but it's important on the rest of the critters there in DC too. 
And then finally, anything that would oppose what we call scope and jurisdictional restrictions on the federal government. That's essentially telling the government, no, you can't do this stuff. For example, you can't be involved in education or energy or healthcare or the environment or a myriad of things that they were never intended to be involved in. So committees will discuss this. They'll probably break out into subcommittees as well, much like your legislature does. When they agree on a proposed amendment, they'll bring it back to the floor of the convention, what they call the committee of the whole, technically speaking. They'll debate it, they'll amend the proposed amendment until they get one that the majority of states can agree upon. It could be one, it could be two, it could be five. They will then send that out to the states for ratification. And the process of ratification is the same as if the amendment came out of Congress. It takes 38 states or three quarters of states to ratify any amendment before it becomes part of the Constitution. So that's the general process. And I want to add one last thing to this that I think is really important. People ask me, well, what happens if they get into convention and they can't come to any conclusion? They can't actually propose an amendment. And that's possible, by the way. In fact, that's the outcome probably that if I worry about it at all, that would be the one I worry about most. People talk about a runaway convention. We can talk about that later. I don't worry about that one at all. I worry about when they get there, can they actually decide on anything? And my answer to that is, so that, if you think about it, in essence, you could say, well, maybe that's what failure looks like. And if that's what failure looks like, I'm happy with that because what will happen in the process is we will have built and we have built now the largest self-governing grassroots army in American history and we need that army and you're part of that army. We need it for a lot of reasons and we will have conducted the largest constitutional education project in American history, a project where the American people are paying attention to a discussion that fundamentally asks the question, who decides, you and the states or the federal government. And I think that's a very important discussion to have regardless of the outcome. Mark Meckler is fighting every day to call the first ever Article 5 Convention of States to drain the swamp once and for all. Join Mark and millions of other Americans by signing the official petition at conventionofstates.com pod. And now back to the show. Okay, thanks. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, just to build on that a little bit, uh, our, one of our key sponsors in the House has been with us from the beginning. Dennis Rydell often talks about that point that even if we don't get any amendments out of the convention, just the process of going through that, educating us, our, our, educating ourselves, educating our kids, our colleagues, our friends, our politicians, do not assume your House or Senator understands the Constitution. Actually, probably most of them don't. So it's up to us to educate them, and, and this is a big part of, uh, of what Mark was talking about. Uh, I want to turn to, to, uh, to Michael and... Uh, I'd like you to, two, two things. First, um, and I'll come back on the second one because I know if you're like me, you'll, by the time you answer the first one, you would have forgot the first question. At least our president does that often, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. <laughs> but, um, he forgets the first one. <laughs> <laughs> um, maybe talk a little bit about, you know, I can, I can just imagine you, you uh, sitting around and, and, uh, and thinking about this prior to 2012 or 2013 and trying to, figure out a willing partner that might be able to help you implement this. But talk a little bit about why you think this project, what, what kind of uh, you know, the vision that you had and why you think it's so important and the role of federalism in our country and how we're losing that. Maybe talk a little bit about those kind of topics. Certainly. Uh, first of all, I want to add my uh, thanks to all of you for being here especially those of you who have been here for the long haul. 
appreciate you very much. And those of you who are going to be new tonight, and you're going to be here with us for the long haul, I, I appreciate all of you uh, for, for that. Secondly, um, my wife and I have 10 kids and 29 grandkids. You take over America your way, we'll take over America our way. Uh, uh, and five of my grandkids live in North Carolina. So, so I have a, yeah. Oh, I got, forgot to turn my, my microphone on. It's on my left. I don't, I don't work on the left. Uh, so. oh, on the top. Okay. All right. There we go. It's green now. Okay. So um, those were really good jokes I told. The microphone didn't get it. All right. Here we go. Um, well, in addition to the, the things that were mentioned, uh, I started Patrick Henry College. And um, among other things, Patrick Henry, um, before any other college in the country did it, requires all students of all majors to take a course in constitutional law. And for 17 years, they took it from me. Um, and so, um, and one of the offshoots of that is we uh, had a really pretty good moot court team. Uh, we won, well, this last weekend, we won our 13th national champion. Uh, in the 24-year history of the organization, Two colleges have ever won more than one. Uh, Cal State Long Beach has won two, and Patrick Henry's won 13. Uh, those, and so uh, that's what happens when... <laughs> so, so I've been teaching about the Constitution for a long time. Before that, I taught probably 20 or 30,000 homeschool kids in an online constitutional law course that I've been teaching, I was teaching online for many, many years. So having teaching con law, and practicing con law now for, you know, it's getting close to, it's 47 years. I was nine when I started. Uh, and I, um, I, I saw the disparity between the Constitution as written and the Constitution as interpreted by the Supreme Court of the United States. And I knew from all this activity and teaching it that there was a solution. And it was a s solution that was built out of the idea that people understood that there should be institutional jealousy, uh, that, that you try to protect your own turf, if you will. And do I trust all the state legislators? No. But who do I trust on having a, a say over how much power should the federal government have? Do I want Congress to decide how much power the federal government ha should have? Or do I want state legislators to decide how much power the federal government has. When, you, when those are your two choices, and those are your only two choices, it's really easy to see. It's better that somebody besides the people with the power are deciding how much power they have. And so that's the genius of what, the, what all the checks and balances in federalism. And what we haven't had, frankly, is a proper balance on mainly the Supreme Court, but also upon the, uh, just the runaway power of Washington, D.C. A friend of mine once said, the goal of every committee is to rule the world. And, and, and it doesn't really matter. I'm the women's committee at my church, uh, student council at Patrick Henry College. Everybody wants to rule the world. Um, but these guys have got a shot at it. And, and we need to make sure that they cannot successfully do that because the founders understood a very important truth. And it comes from their understanding of who people are. People are sinners. And because they're sinners, you can't trust anybody with too much power. It's as simple as that. If you have that view of the nature of man, now if you have the humanist view of the nature of man, that man is perfectible, 
then you're going to come up with crazy things like the Soviet Union. Yes. And, and so, or where we're headed in this country. And so we need to make sure that we live out that very fundamental idea about who people are. And I've been teaching that in constitutional law for a long time. And I um, simply came up with the idea it's time to do it now. And Mark and I uh, met up very quickly after that. And you know, the, the rest is really history. Uh, one incident I'll never forget really kind of shaped me in many respects. I was in uh, Albany, New York, negotiating a new homeschool law for that state. And I'd been up with the, uh, in the offices of New York's uh, School Boards Association because they were our constant opponent in court and in the legislature and so on. And we basically started talking to each other. Is there a way we could find a path to stop all this fighting and make homeschooling recognized as legal in, in New York? I was walking from the offices there uh, of the School Boards Association down to the federal court where I had already filed a federal lawsuit challenging the constitutionality of New York's old law. And I walked past a local county-based Department of Education. And in New York, they have a regional Department of Education called BOCES. I have no idea what it stands for. And then, they, then I passed the State Department of Education, and I went past a federal building, and there was a federal Department of Education being represented by this particular federal building. The founders intended that one level and only one level of government deal with each subject matter. And this, this proliferation of various kinds of Department of Education only gives us more bureaucrats and stalemates. And, and, and that if you leave public education, my dad was a public school elementary principal. And he thought if you left it to the local school building and had a combination of parents, teachers, and kids, the people who actually know the kids and love the kids, if you let them make the decisions for each local school, you'd be a lot better off than centralized bureaucracy at whatever level you were talking about. And that rubbed off on me. And uh, that day just stuck out to me. And I said, we got to stop this. we got to stop this proliferation of department of this, department of that, one level and only one level of government should be dealing with every in institution. And that's the way the federal constitution was written. It was not designed to have two departments of anything. And so that's why I got involved, that's why I got started, and uh, had the audacity to believe that the impossible was not impossible. And uh, I'd seen that happen with the homeschool movement where everybody told us it was impossible to beat the teachers union, but state after state, even though they're the most powerful lobbying group in the country, we beat them, mainly because God intervenes. Um, and, uh, and so, and I've seen that in m many other contexts in my life. Uh, I had the privilege of helping to lead the, the, um, the team that wrote the law in Mississippi, that helped the Mississippi Attorney General all the way through that litigation. We were co-counsel to the state of Mississippi, and we, I got to come along for the ride, and made a couple decisions myself in that process, uh, and we saw God do the impossible. Nobody thought Roe versus Wade could be reversed. We lived it, we've seen it. I have the audacity to believe that what we're doing here at Convention State is just that kind of impossible thing nobody else thinks we can do, but I think we can do it. I have to say, you both talk about
Michael coming back to COS as a senior advisor at the summit back in October, I guess it was, and uh, 600 patriots from around the country down there. And well, I tell you, that was a, a chill in the air when, when we heard that he was coming back. And just that concept of things that he has done and been involved in with God's help that has been viewed impossible. It's just, it's just, uh, it's, it's a great feeling for us. Uh, those of us that have been involved for a while, been through the ups and downs. So thank you very much. Uh, I mean, you touched on this a little bit, but what motivated you then to, um, you know, to, to leave ADF and come back to, to COS? Well, uh, those were uh, independent decisions. I, the reason I decided to retire from being CEO of ADF is that um, I had been training uh, a, a terrific young woman. Um, she's young to me. I mean, um, my wife and I have been married for 51 years, and we could be her parents. So, she, so, so she's young to me. Um, and, and so uh, Kristen Wagner, just a terrific person. And I um, am at an age that I wasn't going to stay in a full-time position of that degree of intensity for a lot longer. I didn't want to leave completely, but I felt like I needed to be thinking about the next two or three years, and I realized if I ding around for a couple of years uh, and drag this out, somebody might come along and grab this really talented person that needs to be the leader for the future. So I had a stewardship responsibility, I believe, to tell the board of ADF, I think it's time to move to Kristen. And they took about a year to vet that, uh, even though they knew her well. Uh, so it was a thorough vetting. I feel sorry for her in that respect. <laughs> but, but she passed the muster. And, and so on October 1st, she took over as CEO of, of Alliance Defending Freedom. I am staying in a part-time capacity there. And I'm in a part-time capacity here as well. But um, when I saw that was on the, you know, was on the road to doing it, I started thinking about what ne what's next. And the way I approach semi-retirement is like a big truck, you know, a semi. And, and so uh, I, um, doing nothing is not in my, my blood. And, and so uh, the great news that's already happened is I've just been, I left being a, uh, an employee of ADF on January 1st. And, and I'm now a consultant to them. I don't have hardly any meetings anymore. Oh, man. It's so cool, um, and I can do I can do work. Oh yeah, well, I get work done for COS, but I kind of skirt some of the meetings. But uh, but uh, I um, th this is this is a great thing, and the idea of not coming back to to COS in some capacity is just not within me to do. I. I still am the chairman of the Board of Homeschool Legal Defense Association. I don't get paid for that. It's just, I, you know, I'm the board chairman. I still am on the board of Patrick Henry College. So I don't abandon things, but I sometimes change jobs. And so uh, I'm here. I would never abandon COS in any way, shape, or form. So I want to go back to, to Mark here for a minute. And Mark, talk a little bit about the organization, COS as an organization, and our bigger overall mission in terms of the grassroots, how Article 5 is really a goal within that larger mission. Talk a little bit about the, the organization and the, and the mission. Sure. You know, uh, 
the whole organization obviously came out of Mike's idea, and then there's this natural blending that happens when you have two people that are linked up in the way Mike and I are. In fact, the introduction between Mike and I was made by a very close friend of both of ours and one of our board members now, Tim Dunn. And what Tim said to me is, I think you need to meet Mike Ferris. Uh, first, I think you're gonna love him and I think you guys are gonna be very close friends. I mean, so that was literally the first part of the introduction and that's true, I, I consider Mike like a brother. And he said, and then he has this great idea about Article 5. So first came this idea of personal relationship, which is, that's, you guys know the organization, that's kind of where we come from, from the heart. So that's how we were introduced, is personal first, business second. Uh, and that's the organization. So we are an organization that's dedicated to the idea that we are building the largest self-governing grassroots army in American history. And the way we organize and the principle, the, the core thing that we're organized around is calling a convention of states. And I want you to understand those two things. They're integral, but they're also separate. In other words, if you were to say to me, Mark, what we're gonna do is we're gonna gather together, we're gonna work hard, we're gonna call a convention of states, we're gonna pass out some amendments out of the convention, we're gonna ratify those amendments, and then we're all gonna disband and go home, I would feel like my life's work was a failure. That's not the way we're going to succeed in restoring the nation. We need in our bones to be self-governing citizens. That's what the founders expected of us. They expected that we would be in our own lives, personally, individually, self-governing, according to biblical principles. They expected that we would govern our families, that we would govern our communities, and so on, all the way up to the federal government, that it was on each of us to do part of that job of being self-governing citizens. So uh, the overarching mission is to build this army. And, and why is that so important? Because it's important that you learn, and you are through this project, how your legislature works. You learn who your legislators are, how to lobby them, how to have influence in the legislature. A bunch of you will decide that you're gonna be the person to raise your hand and step up and run for the legislature. We've had folks do that all over the country or run for your school board or your county board. And so this is all part of the idea of restoring self-governance in America. The Convention of States project, because of the way that the founders designed Article 5, is the perfect organizing center for that. So because if you say to people, generally speaking, hey, you know what you really ought to do? Go to your city council meetings all the time and be involved. Most people look at you like, what? I don't, there's a city council? <laughs> right? They don't even know that. It doesn't sound exciting. It doesn't attract people to a mission. I think it's getting more and more like that and I think we can take some credit for that, but that's not where we were at when it started. And so what the idea of a convention of states does is it is a big national project that has flash and glamour to it in the sense, I can say to you, how'd you like to get your hands around the throat of the federal government and shove it back in the constitutional box? <laughs> Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? <laughs> right, so that's exciting. So you say, yeah, I'll sign that petition. I'll volunteer for that. That sounds good and that sounds exciting and that sounds fun. And then you get in and you get all this training and what it forces you to do because of the nature of Article 5 is now you have to work locally, right? Because you gotta organize your district, you gotta know your state legislator, you gotta know your state senator. So what it does is it takes you to the base root of political organizing in America, which I believe is the state legislative district. So the organization is structured around that. As far as I'm aware, there's never been another organization in American history structured this way. And so people all across the country in every state legislative district, you guys got some muscle. 
How many of you watched the Tucker interview? Have you guys seen the interview I did on Tucker? Did you, uh, my favorite part of the whole thing when Tucker said, yeah, you're like the Hare Krishnas, you're everywhere. <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> so, but it's true, and he told me this, and, and I got a comment from my son by text today. He was in a discussion thread somewhere. My son is a lawyer for uh, America First Legal, and he was in a discussion thread on, on the ATF issued some new regulations uh, you guys may or may not be familiar with this on on uh, braced what they call braced pistols, right? And so he's in this discussion thread, and in the middle of the discussion thread, somebody pops up from COS, and he takes a screenshot and he texts it back, and he's like, "Good Lord, your people are everywhere." <laughs> and that is the point. We want to be everywhere because it's up to us to build an organization that has an effect on the American body politic writ large. A couple things I want to tell you about the organization. We are a service organization. That sounds really weird when we talk about a political organization. When Tim Dunn came to me, we first started talking about founding the, the base organization for this called Citizens for Self-Governance, we decided we are going to be an organization that does politics in a Christian way. And this is an important distinction. We're not a Christian organization in the sense that we're not out front with that, right? We're not that we're trying to hide it, but we're, we're not here necessarily to push a quote-unquote Christian agenda. There are great organizations that do that, faith and freedom, or religious freedom organizations like ADF. That's not who we were, but the point was that we were going to do business, we were going to do politics with that ethos. And a lot of people told us that that was impossible. Politics is a brass knuckle business and you don't understand how it really works and it's down and dirty and it's gutter politics and we said That's okay. We're gonna do it this way. And so what we talk about is we serve God We serve each other inside the organization We serve the grassroots we serve the mission and we serve our country And so our orientation is always towards service. What can we do to help when we talk to a legislator? How can I serve you? Is there something that you're passionate about in the legislature? We might be able to help you with we do that with each other internally on the national staff We try to do it with all the state teams. What can we do to serve you? So we have this service orientation as an organization doing politics writ broadly and I think because of that We've built this organization. I think God has smiled on this organization because we try to carry that in our hearts. Are we perfect at it? For sure not. Because like Mike said, we're all sinners, right? We're all flawed. But that's kind of the basis of how we do business as an organization. Structurally, uh, Jeff mentioned this. There's, I think we're up to about 85 employees nationally. We don't have an office. And the reason we don't have an office is I don't want to have the overhead of an office. I'd rather put the money that we raise on target in staff, in events in the grassroots all across the country, uh, the hundreds and hundreds of events. There's on average over two events a day take place for COS somewhere in the country every single day. So that's how we spend our money. We do, you know, there is, we do have one high rise office in the organization. I always want to have full disclosure. My office is in the house on the first floor. Patty's in the office above the garage. That's the high rise. <laughs> So if anybody asks you, where's the high-rise office for COS, it's above Meckler's garage. <laughs> so that's how the organization's structured. The, the employees are here to serve all of you. 
We have an organizational pyramid. If you were to see a drawing of the pyramid, it's upside down, it's balanced on its point. And the point of that is that we see ourselves at the national staff level as here to serve you. So the very bottom of the pyramid, the person who's lowest on the pyramid is me because my job is to serve absolutely everybody else. And so that starts with my executive team. And I think there are now nine or 10 of us on the executive team. Uh, Simon and Jason are both on that executive team to serve people like Grant, who's out there in the field doing the hard work as a regional director. And then their job obviously is to serve you guys as the state team. So that's kind of how the organization overall is structured. Okay, thanks. <clears throat> thanks, Mark. I want to uh, turn to some legislative uh, topics and before I go to Joy on, on what's happening here locally, maybe just speak just very briefly about what's happening nationally from a legislative standpoint. Uh, I don't know, it's all a blur. <laughs> this time of year is crazy because what happens is all the legislatures fire up at once. I think uh, the first week of January, I think there were 43 legislatures that fired up. I think we, were, we might even be up to 48 or 49 by now. So it happens fast and things move at different paces in different legislatures. Uh, you have legislatures that have 60-day sessions, 90-day sessions, 120-day sessions. Uh, some are year-round, there's a few. The worst of them are year-round legislatures. Uh, and I don't say that facetiously, those are all the worst of them. Uh, so what we do is our teams are doing what you guys do. Every state had put together a state plan, just like you did, so everybody knows what they're gonna do going into session. And all those plans are starting to run now. And so what that means is we're actually starting to have hearings. So yesterday uh, in Helena, Montana, there was a hearing. A bunch of us were watching that online. Our national staff tends to watch these things together. And we have our running Slack commentary for watching these things uh, where we can scream and yell sort of metaphorically at our computer screens watching the opponents. And so we had a hearing in Montana yesterday. We had a hearing in the Rules Committee in Kansas yesterday. Uh, from my perspective, looking out there across the country, uh, I'm not saying this because I'm here in North Carolina, I think this is the top state. I mean, this is the one that is, I absolutely believe it's gonna happen here this year. If I had to, if I had to choose one, I would choose this state. Um, I think I would say, uh, and I'm, I'm actually a little bit surprised to be saying this, I'm very excited to be saying this, I think Montana and Wyoming both look incredible. And I, I'm, the reason I'm telling you I'm surprised to say that, if you would have seen what happened to us in Montana last year, I mean, you want to talk about a full frontal kick in the teeth. That's what we got in the Montana legislature last year. Rick Santorum was there. Uh, it was so bad. I mean, it was humiliatingly bad. And yet what happened is a lot of what y'all did here in North Carolina, those folks went out and they worked in those elections. And the, the whole complexion of the legislature changed because of that. There was plenty of turnover. Uh, we have allies in the leadership in both houses there. And so things look really good in Montana. The same is true in Wyoming. And that should be a lesson. Uh, you guys have already learned that lesson here, but I'm gonna repeat it because it bears repeating, which is when you go out and you participate in elections, it makes a difference in the legislature. Even if you don't turn over people, because they look at you completely differently. You now have political muscle. So uh, Iowa looks really interesting and good to me, and that's been a very rough state for us for a very long time. Another state I'm super excited about that I'll be going to the beginning of February is Idaho. Another state that's been really rough, the mountain states, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, uh, South Dakota, these, these the plains into the mountain states, those have been very rough states for us, and things look really good in most of those states this year. So I'm excited about the legislative session.
This has been the podcast version of the Battle Cry with Convention of States Action President Mark Meckler. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod and become part of the solution that's as big as the problem. Thank you for listening.